Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Multi-State Monday, our podcast series from Ogletree Deacons, where we discuss the latest trends when it comes to employment law issues for multi-state employers. I'm Deanna Hayes in the firm's Tampa office, and I'm the chair of Ogletree's Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group. And I'm joined today by several friends and colleagues. We have Susan Gorey from our Indianapolis office with us again as a co-host. She's been on several of these podcast episodes. We love our listeners and we are so excited about today's episode with our fabulous guests. Thank you, Susan. And we also have two special guests with us, Michael Mahoney, who is a shareholder in our Morristown, New York office. Mike is a member of the Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Practice Group, and he's also the chair of the Payroll Tax and Fringe Benefits subgroup. And we have Melissa Pesci from our St. Louis office, who is a council attorney who frequently advises employers on issues related to remote workforces from a labor and employment perspective. So today we're going to be talking about the trends that we're seeing when it comes to remote workforces and what employers might want to be on the lookout for. So I'll turn it over to Mike to share a few things from a tax and insurance perspective that employers might want to be considering. Thanks, Deanna. Yeah, as Deanna mentioned, there are two pretty significant issues that employers face when they have employees working remotely. Uh, in different states than the one where the employee typically works. And so the first issue really relates to an employer's obligation to withhold income tax from employee wages. The general rule is that an employer has a withholding obligation for the jurisdiction where the services are performed. So if you are a South Carolina-based employer and you have employees that are working for you in Georgia, you more than likely have an income tax withholding obligation for Georgia, even if uh, your only connection to that state is having the person working remotely there for you. There are certain exceptions for bilateral reciprocal agreements between states, um, where effectively the states agree that they will only tax their residents. And if a non-resident of the other state were to perform services within their borders, uh, they would not tax that. And then there are also convenience of the employer states where they have rules on their books that permit them or enable them to tax non-residents who are working outside of their state if it is for their own convenience rather than some business necessity. We tend to see those in the Northeast states. So Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, uh, and New York, plus Connecticut. The other main issue that we see relates to unemployment insurance contributions for remote working individuals. Uh, And fortunately here, 
there's a four-part test that each state has passed where it enables the employer to determine the single state to where contributions should be made. And the first part of that test looks at where the person's services are localized, which is the place where the predominant amount of their service is performed, such that service provided elsewhere is transitory or incidental in nature. Then we look at the base of operations, if their service is not localized anywhere, and their base of operations would be the place where they start and end their day and provide some service. If the person does not have a base of operations, then the third test looks at the place of direction and control, basically where the person's manager or boss sits um, and where perhaps the corporate headquarters is. If there is no place of direction and control where the employee also provides some service, the fourth and catch-all test looks to the state of residence for the employee. So, Mike, I'm doing a lot of advice and counsel right now with employers who are not ready to go to a fully remote policy, but are, but have more of a remote policy or a more hybrid policy where they allow remote work maybe two or three days a week. And we here in St. Louis are bordering with Illinois. So what happens when you've got an employee who has um, a place of business in Missouri, for example, but their home's in, in Illinois and they work part of the time in Missouri and part of the time in Illinois? It's a great question because we are seeing a significant rise in the number of hybrid work arrangements for uh, employees. This is kind of employers flexing a little bit to enable some remote work while still having in-office presence. It does raise complications from a tax perspective because for income tax purposes, the employer will need to examine both the, I'll call it the work state, wherever their office is located, the rules for that for that work state. And they will also need to examine the income tax withholding rules for the employee's resident state. Often they will have to allocate the wages earned by the employee between the jurisdictions and then withhold accordingly. So they would, uh, they would be withholding for two different jurisdictions. Um, based on the amount of time spent working in each location, um, which does add complexity to the payroll processing, but that's how they would be compliant from an income tax withholding perspective. On the unemployment side, a hybrid work arrangement uh, is certainly permitted, but we always have to remember that unemployment insurance contributions should be made only to one jurisdiction, even if the person works a hybrid schedule between two states. So we would still ap uh, apply that four-part test to the hybrid employee. And generally speaking, if there is one jurisdiction where the person is working more than the other, the contributions would go to that jurisdiction where they're performing more service. What if an employee is temporarily relocating for the purposes of a short-term project or is, is not going to be um, permanently housed in a new location? What should employers think about or consider in those situations? So if we're dealing with short-term business travel or short-term um, assignments or even personal travel where the person will work uh, remotely from a destination location uh, of their own choosing, 
we do need to apply the same analysis. So we would have to look at the tax laws of the destination that they are traveling to for income tax withholding purposes. Generally speaking, the vast majority of states do not have a de minimis threshold before a non-resident traveler working in their state is subject to income tax withholding. So if someone said, I typically work in uh, Illinois, but I'd really love to go to California for three weeks. Uh, I'm going to take one week of vacation, but I'm going to work remotely for the other two weeks. The employer would technically have a California income tax withholding obligation for the wages paid for those two weeks in which the person was performing services from California. Um, and again, the vast majority of states have no threshold. So that's the, it'd be a similar answer across much of the country. The states with day thresholds are really outliers. So Arizona has a 60 day threshold. Uh, New York state has a 14 day rule where a person is not taxed uh, if they are expected to work from New York for 14 or fewer days in a year. Um, but again, the, the general rule is that the person is taxable from day one, dollar one within those destinations that they're temporarily working from. What happens, let's say, if an employer finds out after the fact that the employee has been working from a different location? For instance, let's say that the company thought the employee was going to be working remotely from Illinois. They asked the employee to come in for an in-person training and the employee says, well, I can't because I moved to California three months ago. What should the employer do there? It's a great conundrum that they find themselves in. And I, I call this the, did the employee ask for permission or are they asking for forgiveness? Because we, <laughs> we are frequently seeing this issue arise for our clients now. Technically, the business is obligated to retroactively correct the tax reporting for that individual because they, an employer is responsible for knowing where its employees are working. And generally speaking, there are also what I'll call digital breadcrumbs that would help them identify that location like remote IP login information. So they have the data points to know where the employee is working, whether they are mining and checking it is a very different story often. But that is why the states would nonetheless hold an employer accountable for time spent working within the jurisdiction, regardless of whether the employee asked for permission uh, or is now asking for forgiveness. Wow. Well, I'm sure that can be a big issue. And because of that, I'll ask you and Melissa just to chime in on um, should employers perhaps consider having remote work policies or agreements with employees to kind of set those expectations in advance? Dean, I think that's a great question. Um, as as I'm talking to employers more and more and remote work is becoming more prevalent, we believe it's a best practice to have those policies in place. It promotes uniformity. It promotes um, fairness in the policies. It gives you a jumping off point then to uh, create more individualized plans with employees, making sure that across the board then there is a baseline that is consistent, whether it be from department to department or from office location to office location. So 
we would say that, yes, employers um, might want to consider having those remote work policies in place and then build on those policies as individuals come forward and have a need for remote work, either for as an accommodation, for example, or just as a convenience factor. That certainly makes sense. And then Another thing employers might want to consider is how the remote workforce is going to fit into existing policies that may already be in place. I know I had a client that had an issue recently where they needed to conduct drug testing for a remote worker. And it was interesting because this is the first time that they had that issue come up and they did some research and found out that there are actually some services out there who will go to a remote work location or an employee's residence to conduct that type of drug testing. And I think it can also come into play with things like expense reimbursements. Uh, Mike, have you seen that from a tax perspective? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's It always amazes me that there isn't perfect alignment. Perhaps it shouldn't shock me anymore, but there is not perfect alignment between state labor laws and the tax code. So we find scenarios where under state labor law, for example, California, employers are obligated to reimburse employees for expenses that they incur in carrying out their job duties. While that's the labor codes requirement, from a tax law perspective, it's a separate analysis of whether or not that expense should be reimbursed on a taxable or non-taxable basis. In order for home office related expenses, for example, home internet to be non-taxable, the person's home office must qualify as their principal place of business, which requires that they have a space that they use exclusively and regularly for work and that they have no other fixed location from where they provide services. When we kind of unpack that, that means anyone that is using a mixed use space in their home, like a kitchen table, for example, as their home office cannot have non-taxable reimbursement for uh, home office expenses. With respect to the second requirement that the person have no other fixed location, it also means that anyone that works a hybrid schedule can never have non-taxable home office reimbursements because they have that other fixed location where they provide services on a somewhat regular basis. So that analysis is important because when we think of reimbursing for home office expenses, while there may may be state labor requirements requiring reimbursement, they may have to be taxable in order to pass muster and not expose the client to tax liability. Mike, I'm seeing more and more requests for accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act and similar state laws uh, to work remotely. If an employer is considering or giving an employee an accommodation, is does that impact the, the tax liability or exempt the employee from tax liability if it's an expense associated with an accommodation versus remote work from a convenience standpoint? It's a great question, Melissa. It's, it's another Another instance where the tax law and things like the ADA do not perfectly align. And so while there may be an obligation to make a reasonable accommodation for the employee under the ADA, 
It does not change our analysis of the taxability under the Internal Revenue Code, which would require that the home office expense be for an ordinary and necessary expense at the person's principal place of business. What are the consequences of an employer not following all of the tests that you just described and going back and seeing if the labor code for example, does not reconcile with the tax code? It's a great question because we can see fairly significant exposure here. If an item is underreported for tax purposes, or if an employer fails to withhold taxes for a jurisdiction where a remote worker is working, the exposure is equal to the taxes that should have been withheld or contributed Right? So if we're dealing with a, a, an expense reimbursement that should have been taxable but was not, we basically underreported the wages. So we'd look at the taxes on the value of that amount. That would be the first level of exposure. And then the state or the IRS would look to assess penalties, right? potentially including something like negligence, which would be a 20% penalty at the federal level of the tax amount plus interest. And interest with the IRS compounds daily, and you're often looking at potentially a multi-year period of interest accrual. The current uh, underpayment rate is 7% or 9%. So when you have daily compounding on such a high interest rate, the interest component can actually be a significant portion of the exposure for a business. And how aggressive are the state tax agencies and or the IRS? Is this a common occurrence? Because in my practice, which is multi-jurisdictional um, advice and counselor, very similar to, you know, Melissa's, so many times I hear, oh, well, my employee moved to this state, and so we're just going to go ahead and permit him or her to continue working there. And my first question is, have you arranged to do business there and paying all the appropriate taxes? But are there more issues and or how exposed are they in the event that that occurred? We are certainly seeing an increase in audit activity in this space. I think um, the states are certainly well aware of the prevalence of remote and hybrid work. And so they are uh, beginning to focus on that more as an additional source of revenue than they perhaps historically were. I would also say their ability to analyze big data is becoming more enhanced as the years go by, right? They all can uh, research and identify when an employee is working within their boundaries, looking at those digital breadcrumbs. So they're able to track and determine when someone was working within their states. They can look at things like expense reports to determine where someone was working if it's a travel situation, right? If you expense a flight to New York State, they know that that was a business expense, your destination was New York, therefore you were working in New York. So their ability to analyze big data has also enhanced their ability to identify the exposure for businesses 
and they realize that they're getting a significant return on investment for every auditor that they pay to do this type of audit. With respect to the IRS, we are starting to see or continue to see pretty significant reviews of accountable expense reimbursement plans. And I expect that as they continue to audit pandemic and post-pandemic years, they will become more sophisticated in strictly reviewing and analyzing the principal place of business analysis for home offices. And so along those same lines, are there any kind of considerations an employer should be having at the top of mind when they have a policy, for example, on expense reimbursement in their handbook? They should, right? So when they're reviewing their expense reimbursement policy, they should ensure that they consider outlining the the rules of the road so that they're applying it uniformly to employees. They may also wish to consider providing what's known as a tax gross-up in the event that home office expenses are treated as taxable benefits. That will ensure that the employees receive a specific net amount that the employer thinks covers their liability with respect to those state labor law reimbursement requirements. They should also consider providing some communications to employees so that employees understand the consequences of remote and hybrid work arrangements, uh, including what how that may impact any expense reimbursements that they think they may be entitled to. Mike, we've been talking a lot today about uh, both federal and state tax implications, but one thing I realized when counseling clients, um, especially during COVID, was there are a number of municipalities and counties who have earnings taxes that we also have to be aware of when we've got remote workers. How prevalent are those municipality earnings taxes where an employer might have to watch out for not only the state implications, but also the local municipality implications of having remote workers? It's a great question. We're starting to see more and more municipalities and localities Uh, implementing earnings taxes. They are very common in several states like uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Indiana. And then there are jurisdictions throughout the country that have somewhat independently implemented their own local uh, income tax. So New York City, for example, there are several throughout California and even Alabama that have local taxes. So it really is just about understanding where your employee will be working and then doing any research or consulting with counsel to identify uh, and ensure compliance with those obligations. And Melissa, you brought up a great point with regard to the municipalities. What about internationally? What if someone says, I would like to go to Italy for a month, however, I would like to work there, and there's no restriction, for example, of accessing data, and they would be permitted to um, continue working? Are there 
any issues with international work? There absolutely are. So there are, uh, first, I'll, I'll talk about the tax components. Whenever someone is traveling internationally, we need to identify and determine whether the person may be eligible for tax treaty benefits, which is very dependent upon their destination, right? So we have fairly strong treaty networks with much of Western Europe, but other areas of the world, we do not have particularly strong treaty networks. Um, we would also want to examine whether or not there was a totalization agreement in place, which is effectively a bilateral treaty, but for social taxes uh, in that destination jurisdiction, whether or not uh, the business would perhaps create an obligation for uh, either income or social taxes in that destination obligation or destination country. Aside from the tax implications, there are many other considerations that employers should have before permitting international remote work. Top of the list would be immigration. Does the person actually have work authorization in their destination country? Even right, if it's only for two weeks? Yes, right? A tourist visa does not entitle the person to work within that jurisdiction. I think that the theme of this is everybody, you know, a lot of employers believe, oh, well, let's just go to a remote workforce and it will be easy and everybody will be happy. It certainly feels very overwhelming as I listen to you, Mike, that there are certainly some significant issues that might lead to significant consequences. Agreed. There are certainly challenges, not to say that remote or hybrid work is a bad thing, but it's about being aware of where your employees are working and understanding what your obligations as an employer are with respect to that remote or hybrid work. And Melissa, as we wrap things up here, in response to what Mike just stated, what are some tools that an employer might consider in kind of regulating those considerations? So a strong remote work policy, even if you only have one remote worker now, remote work is a trending issue. We are seeing it more prevalently with all employers, small, large, local, international. Uh, After COVID, everyone saw that they enjoyed at least working partially from home or remotely. And uh, employees are becoming increasingly more uh, adamant about finding ways for remote work. It could be a remote work program. It could be requesting accommodations under uh, the ADA or a similar state law. And so I think having a strong policy in place that will guide not only the employees, but the managers and the human resources professionals who have to implement this remote workforce. And that would also maybe one consideration to include would be remote work agreements in addition to the policy for individuals. Absolutely. You can take the policy and, and have it serve as the groundwork for individual uh, individualized plans. 
to work in things like production requirements and making sure that the employee knows what is required of them when they are working remotely, uh, that they have to hit the same targets and what those targets are, and making sure that they understand the attendance policy and the sick leave policy and the PTO policy and how that all works with remote work. Because as we were talking earlier about how the policies interact, if you have remote workers and you have a handbook, all of those policies in some way, shape, or form need to apply to those remote workers. Well, thank you, Melissa and Mike, for all this great information today. I know I certainly learned a lot. We appreciate having you on. And I understand that both of you will also be doing a webinar on this topic on September 6th. Is that right? Yes, we are very excited. We have um, a webinar on remote work. It's going to be uh, a a little more in-depth into the remote work policies and different considerations, what employers uh, might want to think about when they're considering whether to allow remote work, under what circumstances to allow remote work. Mike's going to chime in with a lot of the tax implications throughout the program and provide some insight on... um, the taxes, unemployment issues, and and some of the things that he also talked about today. Wonderful. Well, I will get my registration in right away. And thank you everyone for joining us. And I hope you will check out the webinar as well. And stay tuned for the next episode of Multi-State Monday. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.